2: Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast, where we bring you news and analysis of all the latest Georgia shenanigans in Congress and under the gold dome. And today I'm joined by Tamar Hellerman, the AJC Stellar Washington correspondent. How goes it, Tamar?
1: Great. But, you know, my weekend was not as exciting as yours, Greg. Tell everybody what you were were doing yesterday (laughs) in the Super Bowl.
2: Yeah. So a little known um, fact about me, for every big... um, sports event at the at Mercedes Benz um, and some other events as well. I try to be a photo runner. Um, that means I've done this for years for the Associated Press and the AJC. And that means that we have a talented group of photographers along the fields at these big events and they need their chips run back to photo editors waiting in the bowels of the stadium so that they can edit the photos and move them for print deadlines online, all that. So for I've been I started doing this about ten years ago for the AP, and that means after every big play, after every turnover, after every quarter, before halftime, at the end of the game, all that um, you run chips from all the photographers who are strategically located around the field. And last night I did that uh, for the Super Bowl, and it was my first Super Bowl. I've done the SEC championship a bunch of times. I've done um, the Rose Bowl. I did the national championship last year, but this is my first Super Bowl and. It was fun. It was a different experience and it was exhausting. By the end of the night, I had logged about 12 miles there. So so it was a lot of running and walking.
1: You know, I always always admire you for for being so diligent about running and kind of keeping up with that routine. But now I get why you're doing it.
2: I see what's going on. (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, I had no stake in the game. So it was fun, but it wasn't. It wasn't quite like you know the national championship game or the SEC championship where so much was on the line for my Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, the, the national championship still, except for the last play, it's still the highlight of my sports, attend- sports running experience. Uh, and I wasn't even – actually, I wasn't even running that game. I was covering Donald Trump because he was there. He left before the first quarter was over or maybe at the very beginning of the second quarter. I wrote a couple stories for the blog. Texted, uh, texted the one of my bosses, Leroy. Said, "Hey, am I free since Trump is out?" He goes, "Go for it, you're free." So I just watched the game from the sidelines <laughs> without having to run around. So that was that was a unique night for me. Not
1: a bad gig at all.
2: Yeah, but we're dealing with uh, what is it called? Um, uh, uh, Mayhem Monday, Super Bowl Hangover Monday, whatever you want to call it. Um, the whole city is the Pepsi billboards will soon be coming down. The um, Made for One. Uh, one-night venue next to Atlantic Station will be deflated. Um, A lot of visitors are already heading out. Um, And yet, the political week is just ramping up because Stacey Abrams has her huge, her big, the biggest speech of her career probably, right, Uh, at the State of the Union response Tuesday night.
1: Exactly. I've covered a ton of State of the Unions over the years, but I cannot say and this is, you know, I feel bad even saying this. I don't know if I've watched a rebuttal from start to finish. Usually they're so boring. Usually the best these people can do is kind of just not messing up. It's it's really considered kind of a cursed gig. And I've talked to a lot of folks over the last few days about who have done it in the past, and we've talked a lot of, about that. But this, no doubt, is a huge platform for, for Abrams as she decides whether she wants to challenge David Perdue in 2020 or perhaps uh, seek a rematch against Brian Kemp in 2022.
2: Let's start with Joe Kennedy cuz you talked to him and he had that that moment I mean it wasn't even a a moment he just had glistening lips and the and and <laughs> sounds weird saying that but all the all the talk after the speech was not about anything he said uh, the case he made, the political message he delivered, but it was about his lips.
1: Yeah, exactly. So um, he gave the the Democratic rebuttal last year. He's a relatively new Democratic congressman from Massachusetts, obviously an heir to the Kennedy lineage. Young guy, spe- is fluent in Spanish. Gave a speech at it was an auto tech facility in his district in Massachusetts. And yeah, overall, he he really didn't mess up when it came to the speech or the content of it. But the only thing people really focused on. He he put on a ton of chapstick before he stepped onto stage and it looked, you know, his glistening lips as he was up there. And, and as I talked to him and, and was asking him about his pieces of advice for Abrams last week, the first thing he said is, hold the chapstick.
2: <laughs> He also said something to you about, you know, uh, pondering himself whether or not this ruined his political career or at least set it back.
1: Yeah, you know, he joked about that and was saying, well, I guess that's up for you, you know, the media and the the public to decide. But he also admitted how, um, you know, going into it, it's such an intimidating job. I mean, there's the infamous Marco Rubio gaffe from 2013, where he kind of locked eyes with the camera as he was reaching for his glass of water. Um, there was a really awkward Bill Clinton kind of infomercial in the 80s um, when he was Arkansas governor. And so it's the sort of gig where people remember you not if you do well or decent or, you know, it's, it's only when you mess up. And so um, people take it knowing that it can really help launch their political star. Um, It helped, especially at the beginning with Gerald Ford and and President uh, or then Congressman George H.W. Bush to help kind of uh, get their name in the national conversation. But there's also a potential significant downside if you mess up.
2: Mm -hmm. And Stacey Abrams is pretty transparent about that. Look, I mean, she she lost that really close race for Georgia governor. She is likely, it seems ever more likely to run for the US Senate against David Perdue in 2020, especially with this gig. And she was at a tech conference in California where she said, she used the same word that Kennedy used uh, to you. She used the word terrified. That she, she's terrified by it, not because she's nervous that she'll mess up, she said, but because so many people want this platform, want this pulpit to be able to respond to President Trump.
1: Exactly. And I talked to some other veterans of these rebuttal speeches, particularly Kathy McMorris Rogers, who went in 2014, the year right after Marco Rubio. And she mentioned the same things, feeling really scared she was going to have a big gaffe. And and she said the best advice that she got and, and the advice that she was giving Abrams was just to find a platform that's comfortable, find some sort of setup. Whether that's just her talking to a camera alone or maybe an event with a couple people, maybe a couple dozen people to feed off of. But just kind of knowing that you're not going to be able to capture the pageantry of the House chamber, which is what President Trump is going to have. Um, But just kind of do the best you can and just be as comfortable as you can, knowing that that this is a difficult job.
2: Yeah, and as of this Monday morning recording, we don't know exactly where Stacey Abrams will deliver her remarks, but we know it won't be in the ornate house chamber. She won't be able to feed off of hundreds of lawmakers and dignitaries and you know and, and all the pageantry and the oyes oya, you know, all, all all the greetings and the Mr. Speaker, uh here comes President Trump type of uh, you know, type of rigmarole. Um but She'll likely be in a, in a quiet room, you know, maybe with a couple supporters around her or maybe, you know, behind the camera. Um, and she'll be delivering it to a teleprompter and a, a single camera. And she'll also have to struggle with uh, something that every uh, speaker does, every Democratic responder does, which is she doesn't know what Trump's going to say. So she has a pre-written speech, but she might have to go, you know, in a flash and change up some words, add a few more lines in, take out that. Do some quick edits, depending on what the president says.
1: Exactly. And, you know, we'll, see, we'll start getting excerpts of Trump's speech throughout the day on Tuesday. So she's not going in entirely blind. Um, the, the administration has, has already done some kind of preview calls with reporters to talk a little bit about his main messages. What we know so far is they're saying he's going to have a message of unity, which is very similar to his theme last year. But at the same time, he's going to be talking a lot about immigration, uh, you know, his signature issue, which is certainly a very decisive one. Um, so Abrams will certainly have a lot to talk about. What I'm going to be really interested to see, you know, the setting of of where she's going to give her talk is going to say a lot about uh, potentially what she wants to do politically and the messages she's going to be focusing on, not only in her speech, but potentially in a future campaign. I'm going to be really interested to see if she picks a city or a site in Georgia somewhere with historic significance. Maybe she picks somewhere with a history in the civil rights movement. Maybe she goes down to rural Georgia um, to talk about uh, you know, underserved communities, which was uh, a key part of her platform as she was running for governor as well. Um, what are you expecting from Abrams, Greg?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think if her, if she had it her way, you know, and if the logistics weren't involved and everything else, she probably would go to somewhere in rural Georgia. She's been back to, she launched her campaign from Albany, Georgia and Southwest Georgia, um, you know, about a year and a half ago. And then when she kicked off her thank you tour earlier this uh, it was last month. She also went, she kicked it off from Albany. So, you know, I, I, you would expect her to want to go somewhere in rural Georgia, um, to make that message. Um, especially if she has an eye on 2020, because d- Democrats are gonna have to do better in rural Georgia than, 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 the, than she did, um, last year in order to cut some of the Republican margins. Um, but at the same time, you know, there's going to be a pool camera. Uh, there's th- th- she probably doesn't want to sit in a car f- for three hours uh, on the big day of the speech to get down there. So it's more likely she'll be somewhere in Metro Atlanta, somewhere closer to where she lives. And um, and there's there's pitfalls for doing it in front of a live audience. The last two speakers um, took did, you know picked very um, telling platforms to give their speech. You mentioned Joe Kennedy did at an auto training facility. Steve Bashir, the former governor of Kentucky, went to a diner. Um, and he had all the faces of, of people in this diner in his, in the backdrop, but that that could have been that was a little bit jarring and distracting too for for viewers um, to watch the people behind him kind of fidget around and move. So it's tough because um, you also don't want a stayed quiet room, you know, with a beige backdrop too. So picking that picking that setting is very difficult as well.
1: I'm going to be in the House chamber as Trump gives at least the early part of his speech, watching the members of Congress and all the dignitaries watch Trump, uh, which will say a lot. Um, you know, there's a couple of Democrats from Georgia, including Hank Johnson and, and John Lewis, who mentioned that they're likely going to boycott the speech. But then there's also the Democrats who will show up, who in the past few years have chosen to um, show their dissent by, you know, the, the type of clothes they wear, um, buttons on their lapels, by the guests that they're bringing. So that's something I'm going to be watching closely as well.
2: And let's talk about the symbolism of the guests. We have a few of the names so far, right?
1: Exactly. Um, so uh, some people go for incredibly kind of political choices. They're trying to make a point about... Um, about the direction of the country and about the administration. So from some of the the Republicans in in the House, we're seeing, uh, you know, Doug Collins announced today on Fox News, he's bringing a uh, local Latino conservative who um, whose uh, parents immigrated to the U.S. legally and has been very, you know, is a very vocal Trump supporter to kind of make the point that um, not all Latinos are against the president and there's value to to changing immigration um, policy. And, and it's not just a uh, kind of a, all, Demo- or all Latinos are in the Democrat corner. Um, who else? Drew Ferguson is bringing a local business owner who, um, who's benefited from tax reform. You have uh, you have Buddy Carter, who's bringing a uh, local official from the armor, or sorry, the Hunter Air Force Base in his, uh, or the Army Hunter Army Base in his district. You also have uh, folks who you know you have Democrats like Lucy McBeth, who are bringing kind of political guests on the other side of the spectrum. Um, she is bringing the the uh, parents of a, a local vic- victim of, of gun violence, so that'll be interesting to see too. You have other folks who are bringing their wives, their spouses, which is kind of the typical thing that you've done in your past. You also have Johnny Isaacson, who's bringing uh, Atlanta Mayor Keisha Bottoms as mm-hmm. her, her as guest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, you know, his staff mentioned he's trying to build that relationship now that now that she's in office, and, and that's kind of seen as a continuation of that. And then you have David Perdue, who's been uh, very passionate about the Boys and Girls Club, and he's bringing a uh, a young college student who uh, was the member of the year in Georgia last year. So the kind of full spectrum of guests from Georgia lawmakers.
2: I'm really interested by Isaacson's pick because um, it's another attempt to sort of reforge that alliance that Nathan Deal and Kasim Reed had and that Nathan Deal had with Keisha, Bott- Keisha Bottoms um, his last year in office and her first. It's a different dynamic. I mean, Brian Kemp ran a, ran a highly partisan campaign um, where the two of them traded some barbs, but they've also kind of uh, buried the hatchet, so to speak. They, he he drove down to City Hall shortly after his election to speak with her, and then I was at an event with the two of them a couple of days ago at the at the Buckhead Coalitions Coalitions annual luncheon, where uh, they they both talk about working together for the Super Bowl for other big events and forging a bipartisan alliance. So I don't know, maybe there's some hope. Um, you know, may, maybe Georgia can be something of an example to Washington.
1: It's very on brand for Isaacson. First of all, he sees himself as kind of the keeper of all of Georgia's parochial interests in in Washington, um, so kind of forging a close relationship with the mayor of Atlanta kind of makes sense for him. He also has kind of this image as a bipartisan deal maker, so that continues it as well. And we've written plenty over the last few years, Greg, about how Isaacson has a very unique approach to to Trump compared to a lot of other Georgia Republicans that that has worked really well for him. That that some see as a model for other um, suburban Republicans who've been kind of struggling over the last year when it comes to Trump. He's kept a very arm's length approach. He's, in, you know, he's endorsed the president. Overall, he's he's spoken, um, you know, he's supported a lot of the things the president has done, including confirming conservative Supreme Court justices, tax reform, that sort of thing. But he's also kind of kept his distance when it's come to some of the president's more contentious proposals, and especially when it comes to some of the more divisive things he said. So, Um, This is kind of, in my eyes anyway, inviting Mayor Bottoms is kind of uh, bringing it full circle. It really kind of embodies his brand in Washington.
2: You know, this year you've kind of got a twofold challenge because you always have to scramble to get reaction from our lawmakers, from our delegation, the Georgia delegation, to the State of the Union speech. You've got to do that Tuesday night, but you've also got to wait—you know—20 minutes after that and also get reaction to Stacey Abrams' speech because, of course, that's that's going to be—you know—a a giant story in the Georgia media as well.
1: Totally. And the timing is is super weird. It, I love covering State of the Union on Capitol Hill. It feels like the first day of school. Everyone is super giddy and excited to be there. And it really is one of those cool moments when you get to remember how awesome it is getting to, to cover Washington and, and be there to have this front seat to all of it. And after the address is over... All of the dignitaries and members of Congress spill into the adjoining, uh, you know, the room next to the House Chamber, which is Statuary Hall. Which, if you watch cable news like Fox and MSNBC every day. That's kind of where they have their cameras set up. There's all sorts of statues from each state and all the television cameras set up there on um, State of the Union night and lawmakers walk around. And if they want to, they can come give interviews to every single media outlet. So it's a really great opportunity for me to grab members of the delegation very quickly. But they're coming off of this only having seen Trump's speech. They don't have a television with them to to be able to watch Abrams' speech. So So, uh, logistically, it's going to be kind of interesting to
2: Yeah. And let's go back to Abrams' speech one more time too, because it's also symbolic, You know, obviously her selection, not just where she's going to do, what she's going to say or the setting. I mean, just the fact that we have the first black woman to ever give the Democratic response to the State of the Union, the first non-public elect, non-currently elected official. Obviously, she used to be a state lawmaker, but she's not.
1: And the first Georgian.
2: And the first Georgian. Um, I didn't realize that one. So another another first to add to the lists, and also you know symbolic of the party's shifting uh, focus. And the last two Democratic responses came from white male Democrats. One was, as we mentioned, Steve Bashir. The other was Joe Kennedy, uh, and both them did it in settings. His was a, a, a diner in coal country. Uh, Bashir's was Kennedy's was um, at an auto training facility, kind of with a message aimed at. You know, you'd say Trump supporters, perhaps, right, uh, about wooing back some moderates um, in both, you know, in, in the electorate that, that left because of Hillary Clinton or left for other reasons and, and voted for Donald Trump or just stayed home. Well, Stacey Abrams, the, just the very selection of hers, she might give a mainstream appeal, but just her selection sort of embodies the shift of the, of the party towards more progressive views.
1: Exactly. The people who are delivering these rebuttals are handpicked by party leaders. So Pelosi and Schumer right now. So Bashir, you could look at that came weeks after Trump won the election. A big surprise that, you know, really swept through the Rust Belt and, and kind of areas with kind of a more aging population. And Bashir was seen as kind of a way to show that Democrats were not out of touch with the working class, especially in coal country where Trump did so well. Then you look at Kennedy last year, you know, this came as as we had kind of a simmering trade fight that was beginning to, to build up with China and the EU. Um, you know, not only that, but, you know, there, there was uh, all this talk about the GOP being a party of older people. So that, what did they want? They wanted a young, fresh face kind of guy with a really famous last name to go in and give a speech, not only in English, but in Spanish um, to, to show that Democrats were in touch with them you know, again, the needs of the, the working class. It, it really does say a lot now that they're transitioning to, to Stacey Abrams, given not only how close of a race she gave with with Brian Kemp last year, but also just where they see the party going heading into the 2020 elections. Uh, you have plenty of women who have expressed interest in, in running for president, a lot of people of color Um, That seems to, you know, that's what's exciting the Democratic base right now. And they really want to feed off of that, given how well Abrams, uh, you know, did last year.
2: Millions of eyes will be on Stacey Abrams Tuesday night. We'll be there to cover it all. This quote from her over the weekend kind of summed it up. She was at a tech conference in California. It was the same event where she admitted to being terrified, but because, you know, she didn't want to squander an opportunity to rebut President Trump. She also said this. "Quote: My responsibility is to not only give voice to those who don't believe they've been seen or heard, but to offer remedies, and do that all in ten minutes. <laughs> so that kind of sums up the challenges ahead, uh, the short time frame she has, and you know, and 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 the likelihood that any sort of gaffe, anything she does or or says that is seen as as uh, seen in a negative light, could be used to just hammer her over the next few weeks."
1: Exactly. But I mean, I guess she's <laughs> she's been used to it after the last two years on on the campaign trail. But it'll be interesting to see if she, you know, if she doesn't do so well tomorrow night, um, are people going to start talking about other Democratic names to, to challenge David Perdue in 2020?
2: Who knows? <laughs> yeah I don't uh, my my gut is that it's hers. The field will clear for her of of, of any prominent names, even if she even if she bombs the speech, which i don't I don't think she will. Um but you know, as you wrote today, um it is a golden platform with immense pressure and a cursed history. So we'll be there to cover it for you tomorrow night, Tuesday night, and to analyze it for you in the days and weeks after that. Well, that's all for this week's edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. Head to AJC.com forward slash politics to subscribe to Politically Georgia. You'll get access to our daily newsletter, along with all of our stories and updates on all things Georgia politics. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and rate us. It really means a lot to us when you do. And as always, thank you for listening.
0: Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song.